This presentation was recorded live at the 19th annual SRI in the Rockies Conference, Beyond Borders, Investing and Partnering for a Sustainable World, held October 26th through 29th, 2008, in Whistler, British Columbia, Canada. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this session and to the SRI in the Rockies Conference. Thank you for joining us. My name is Fran Teplitz, and I serve as the Managing Director for the Social Investment Forum. And on behalf of the Forum and the First Affirmative Financial Network, I'd like to welcome you to this session entitled The Mortgage Crisis, Industry Responses and Next Steps for Responsible Investors. We have a wonderful lineup of panelists uh, this morning who have worked very hard on their presentations. Looking forward to some lively presentations followed by very successful Q&A based on all of the questions I know that we'll have in the audience. Just a couple of housekeeping items, if I may. Do make certain that your cell phones are turned off. And during the Q&A session, please do come to the middle aisle and speak into the microphone. That's essential for our recording process. We're now ready to get underway, and I'd like to introduce uh, Lisa Green-Hall, who will be moderating and also speaking on this morning's panel. Lisa is currently the Executive Vice President and Chief Lending Officer at the Calvert Foundation, a private nonprofit organization whose mission is to maximize the flow of capital to communities in need in order to foster a more equitable and sustainable society. Lisa manages a team of 10 investment professionals and a $150 million portfolio of loans. Lisa previously served as Chief Credit Officer for the American Communities Fund in the Housing and Community Development Division within the Fannie Mae Corporation. Lisa also worked in the Clinton Administration at the National Economic Council as a Senior Policy Advisor covering community development issues. So with that, I'm pleased to welcome Lisa. Thank you so much, Fran. Um, I'm thrilled to be here. This is my first time attending SRI in the Rockies. Um, yeah, I'm very excited. Um, and although it's my first time, I feel like I'm here with friends and family. I see in the audience this morning borrowers of Calvert Foundation. I see investors in Calvert Foundation. And I even see a board member of Calvert Foundation here with us. Um, so good morning. And as Fran said, I'm Lisa Hall. Um, I'm thrilled to be here as the moderator for this morning's panel, and I'm joined by a very esteemed group of speakers. Um, we're going to do our best to be brief in our formal presentation so we can save as much time as possible for the question and answer period. And the question here today that we really want to focus on is what can we do as responsible investors What can we do about the mess that we find ourselves in in this country today? And predictions are that foreclosures are going to get worse, not better, that home values will drop in the coming years before they rise or even remain flat. So how can we, as socially responsible investors, be part of the solution, not the problem? Thank you. Um, I do want to bring up, I have a short presentation that I'm going to do as well that Fran is helping me to bring up. And before I do that, I want to introduce our wonderful panel. Seated to my left, you have Dave Bukholz, who's a senior policy analyst at the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C. 
His work addresses emerging issues that affect consumers and communities, and recently his work has focused on subprime lending, servicing, loss mitigation, foreclosures, and community stabilizations. So we're really privileged to have such an expert with us here today, and he's going to do his best to share with us as much as he can, even though the whole thing is being recorded. Um, so... <laughs> Um, prior to joining the Fed, Dave served as the Director of Applied Research and Innovations at Corporation for Enterprise Development, and he was also previously a Vice President with Self-Help. Deborah Munson is currently with Self-Help Credit Union, where she is the Vice President and Director of Secondary Marketing at Self-Help. In 2002, Self-Help founded the Center for Responsible Lending, a research and policy organization that works to fight abusive lending practices nationwide. And I think most folks in this room probably know that Self-Help has been an incredible leader in this field. Deborah also served on the board of directors of the Social Investment Forum from 2000 to 2006. And then lastly, but certainly not least, we have Julie Goodridge, who founded North Star Asset Management in 1990 to break free from the constraints of traditional money management institutions. She has been a social investment professional in the Boston area since 1985 and one of the original members of the Social Investment Forum at its formation. She currently serves as CEO and CCO of North Star and is responsible for the company's operations, including the development of compliance policy, social and financial investment strategy, corporate expansion, marketing strategy, and personnel. So with that, I'm going to go into a very brief overview um, presentation, um, and then each of the panelists are going to speak for about 12 minutes, and then we'll open it up for some Q&A. So... So I've already taken care of the first part of my presentation, which is the welcome and overview. Um, I'm going to be speaking about how we operate in these uncertain times and also talking about perspectives on the mortgage crisis, in particular the implications for underserved communities. And finally and most importantly, how can we as SRI investors make a difference and be part of the solution? Whoops. Uh-oh. I think I went straight to the end. <laughs> All right, there we go. So again, today's session is focused on how can the SRI community support solutions to address the current crisis through community investment and shareholder advocacy. We're also going to spend a little bit of time, which Dave is going to go into detail, on how did we get here and and how did we end up in the mess that we find ourselves in today. And then lastly, considering investment opportunities in mortgage markets and affordable housing going forward. Social investors and community investment has been in the forefront of responsible single-family mortgage lending. We've been way ahead on this, um, and the SRI community and the intermediaries that the SRI community has supported have been part of the solution. And you hear a lot in the press and from the pundits today about community reinvestment and community investing was part of the problem. And we're here today to talk about how, in fact, we have not been part of the problem. In fact, we have been leading the way with expertise on how to do this type of lending, how to serve low and minority, low income and minority communities in a way that can make money while we are still doing good. So, in spite of the uncertainty in the financial markets today, we're here to say now is the time to invest and support community investing. SRI and affordable housing is more important than ever. 
and nonprofit CDFIs are performing better than the overall market. And Deborah's going to go into some detail that shows that this, in fact, is true, that they're experiencing lower delinquencies, lower defaults, and lower foreclosures than the broader markets. Um, they've also, as a as an industry, developed best practices, which can serve as a model for the for-profit sector. And CDFIs are lending in the same exact communities as subprime lenders and adhering to responsible, prudent underwriting, which has led to the better performance. So what are some of the social implications of the mortgage crisis? Low-income and minority communities were disproportionately targeted, and I, and I use that word carefully. They were targeted by subprime lenders, by predatory lenders, who saw them as a vulnerable population that was uneducated and less sophisticated than other markets and took advantage. And as a result, the impact of the crisis is having a disproportionate impact in these communities. Community investing over decades, really literally decades since the 70s, has contributed to a rise in home ownership and improved quality of life for poor people. And at this moment in time, we're at risk. We are literally at risk of erasing all the gains that were made during that period because of this current crisis. So what do you do in these uncertain times? How do you invest in communities? And we're here to say that it's very important to stick with, to adhere to prudent community investing. Sound due diligence, which can come from a number of sources. Calvert Foundation happens to be one of those sources that provides due diligence, but there are others. The CDFI Assessment Rating Service, the National Community Investment Fund, and I think I saw Sarab here earlier, um, are all sources of sound due diligence for community investing. Also partner with intermediaries to diversify and mitigate risk. Um, examples are Housing Assistance Council, NCB Capital Impact, and Self-Help Credit Union that we have here today, and use strong underwriting and financial ratio analysis. Performance of CDFIs and other community-based organizations shows that do, you can do well by doing good. And so lastly, I just want to touch on what our panelists are going to cover today, and I'm going to stop because I'm going to be very strict on time limits with them, so I have to be strict on time limits with myself and let you uh, see here what they're going to talk about and hear in more detail from Dave, Deborah, and Julie. Thank you. Good morning. I'm a little under the weather, so apologies for the uh, uh, froggy voice. Um, I also need to start before I say anything else um, uh, by saying that my comments this morning reflect only my own opinions and not necessarily those of the Federal Reserve Board or its staff, and Lisa has assured me that that disclaimer will not count against my time um, (laughs) here this morning. Um, I'm going to start by giving you a glimpse of what you narrowly escaped having to listen to this morning. Um, because part of my charge, as Lisa said, was to talk a, a little bit about what got us um, into the mess. And I think we've gotten to a point where mess is probably an officially recognized Federal Reserve term. Um, uh, so on the flight out to Vancouver um, this weekend, I was thinking about this. And I've got to say that my thinking became rather expansive um, uh, about the causes, uh, because there are many, and it's a complicated, interrelated um, set of issues. So I started thinking about the changes within Fannie and Freddie and the evolution of the secondary markets. Um, I thought about the development of credit scoring and automated underwriting starting in the 80s. I thought about the um, deregulation and the end of usury laws in uh, 1980, um, the uh, effects of long period of very low interest rates. 
Um, and I thought, all right, well, good. I've got a good base for uh, the, the start of my comments. Um, and to your benefit, um, I had a bit of an epiphany when I was on the shuttle coming up here, and it was probably only 10 minutes down the road, so you know, we cut it close here. Um, I realized I could talk about all of that, um, but I realized two things. The first is that it would probably bore most of you to tears. Um, uh, that was reason enough to maybe cut it short. Um, the other is that I thought, well, all of those are, in fact, uh, factors. There, there are many that we could talk about, about how we got here today and how we think about um, cleaning up the mess going forward. Um, it also misses probably the, the most important, most proximate cause of our housing troubles today. And this is where I'll remind you that I'm speaking only for myself and not necessarily for the Fed. Um, I, I think the central point um, to remember is that over the course of the last few years, we got into a period um, where there was a gradual erosion, um, and then uh, starting in about 2005, in some parts of the financial services sector, complete abandonment of traditional prudent underwriting standards. Um, if there's one thing we need to remember about how we got here today, I think that's the most important lesson. Now, there are reasons why um, some parts of the financial services sector suddenly started abandoning um, prudent underwriting standards. If you think about the, the bad old days of boring portfolio lending, uh, lenders had a real stake in the game, right? And so they cared whether or not a borrower that they were lending money to stood a chance of being able to repay it. Um, but we've gotten to a point where the risk has been disaggregated um, to the point where for uh, much of the sector, um, the people in the institutions closest to the ground and closest to um, evaluating how much risk is there um, are many steps removed from the implications of a potential default and uh, the credit risk. If you need any uh, proof that this might be the case, I can... I don't have to go real far. Um, in July, the Federal Reserve Board um, issued rules under HOPA, which is the Home Ownership and Equity Protection Act. Um, under that act, we have authority, um, uh, up till now unused, which is a whole other story, uh, we have authority to ban practices that we find to be unfair or deceptive. Um, under those rules, which took effect in July, or uh, uh, became final in July, will take effect next year, um, there's a rule that says you, the lender, have to assess whether or not you think the borrower has the ability to repay the loan. We used to have a word for this, which was <laughs> underwriting. Um, for better or for worse, and I, I don't know if there's any great uh, uh, um, uh, uh, cause of uh, something to be proud of here or not, um, but I was involved in the writing of those rules, and I can assure you there were many times internally that I pointed out how ridiculous this was that we had to create a regulation that said you, the lender, have to try to assess whether or not somebody can repay the loan that you're about to repay them. But because of that disaggregation of risk, among other things, um, that's the situation in which we, we found ourselves. So there are other structural uh, factors that are important to keep in mind. We're not going to have time this morning to talk about any of them in detail. But in addition to that disaggregation of risk, um, there's a lack of oversight and lack of regulatory authority in large parts um, of the market, which I'll talk about. There's a lack of scrutiny on the part of many investors over relying on um, uh, ratings agencies or the emergence of specialty players like mortgage brokers um, that uh, brought some benefit but also a lot of problems with them. Um, and we got to a point by 2006 where there were huge parts of the market that were essentially doing asset-based lending. They were essentially making loans predicated on the assumption that property values that had been going up and up were going to keep going up and up, and so you really didn't need to worry about whether or not an individual borrower um, could repay the loan. It's more complicated than that, but I think that's at the core. 
Um, so as long as those home prices kept appreciating, lending got looser and looser, and subprime lending that had accounted for about 7% of all U.S. home lending in 2002 accounted for a full fifth of the market um, by 2006. Um, house prices kept short, soaring until they started declining, and then they've, they've been steeply declining since about 2005, and we're at a point now where we've got incredibly high rates of foreclosures, as everybody here knows. Um, just one measure of that, first half of 2008, we already have far more foreclosures um, started than in all of 2006, so 1.2 million foreclosures started just in the first half of this year alone. Um, and there are reasons to think, unfortunately, that that trend will continue. Um, so that's where we are. Um, I think one of the, the things that I'd like to point out is that it's important for us to also keep in mind where the problem uh, originated and uh, grew and where it didn't. A large part of the market were, uh, was specialty subprime um, uh, originators, either independent mortgage companies, many of whom no longer exist, 169 uh, subprime lenders that were reporting HUMNA data in 2006 were gone by 2007, um, and th then some of them were subsidiaries and affiliates of depository institutions. So um, the, the independents um, accounted for over half of all higher price lending in 2006, so that's really where the bulk of the action was. Um, unfortunately, I, I probably feel a need to um, point out there has been some criticism about CRA being uh, somehow the cause of all of this. Um, and uh, one doesn't need to do much more than look at HUMD data to realize um, how weak this claim is. In 2006, only 6% of all higher price lending was done by CRA-regulated institutions in their assessment areas. So even if you assume that every one of those loans was awful and toxic and made just because of CRA, we're talking about a maximum of, of about 6% of the market. So clearly... Um, the problems are elsewhere. It also might be worth um, keeping um, in mind that the higher price lending, which is the data that we've got, so that's sort of the best proxy for subprime lending, um, the bulk of that actually went to borrowers who were not low income. Um, in 2006, 57% of all higher price lending uh, went to borrowers who were not lower income. So unfortunately, I think that we've got a window where there are some out there who are trying to scapegoat um, uh, my opinion, uh, CRA and the kind of uh, CRA um, lending and the borrowers that many in this room have spent um, many years, whole careers, um, trying to help. Um, so that's where some of the problems uh, were. Where weren't they? I, I think the data is indicating that, by and large, some of the smaller community lenders, portfolio lenders that weren't selling off the risk, Credit unions, CDFIs, FHA lending um, were not the places where um, the, the crazy excesses of the subprime market were uh, taking place. These are still institutions uh, that remembered this old concept, by and large, of underwriting. Um, and I've taken to uh, use a, a rather lame and cliched um, analogy of the tortoise and hare, and I'm looking for a better one, so if somebody can... Uh, give me some ideas, I'd welcome them. Um, but I think the CDFI world, for instance, um, which for many years seemed like it was way out there on the cutting edge, suddenly looks like uh, one of the tortoises out there who, by and large, um, uh, include institutions that were sticking to their knitting, doing crazy things like asking borrowers to document the income uh, that they said they had. Um, 
There are a lot of things that we could talk about about where we go from here. Um, I'm only going to nod uh, to most of them. We could talk about the industry responses thus far, and I'm happy to do that during Q&A. We could do the same with community responses. Um, but I was asked to um, very briefly touch on legislative and regulatory responses. Um, I come from Washington. I'm sorry. Um, uh, and I've heard some talk recently about the do-nothing Congress that's out there. And I've got to say that if Congress is measured... Um, by the output of their acronyms, we've had an unbelievably productive session. <laughs> Just these last few months, uh, we've seen the birth of TARP and TARF and ESA and HERA and H for H and NSP, and if you don't know what these things are, trust me, you're better off. Um, but there has been a, a fair bit of activity to start. There's been regulatory response. There are the new HOPA rules that we put in place, which, imperfect as they may be, I think will set the new standard for lending once it reemerges, when it reemerges. Uh, there have been other regulatory fixes at other agencies, um, and there has been uh, legislation. Most um, notably, there have been two pieces of legislation I won't get into now, but we can talk about if folks want to. Um, uh, one is the Homeownership and Economic Recovery Act of 2008, which went into place in July. Um, and the second is the um, uh, Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008, otherwise known as the bailout bill, uh, that went into, account, uh, went into place earlier this month. It's hard to believe that it was only earlier this month, um, uh, but, but there it is. So there have been a number of responses to date, but I think for me some of the big questions are um, what are the structural changes um, both in terms of the industry and um, the regulatory framework um, that we expect to see going forward. I fully expect um, that Congress in 2009 is going to really struggle with what the financial services uh, sector ought to look like um, once the dust settles from the current crisis, and the dust will, of course, settle at some point. Um, I think there are a lot of open questions about um, what different parts of uh, the financial services sector belong together, um, what the regulatory scheme ought to look like, how consumers are protected, and how safety and soundness um, uh, is assured as well. Um, so I'm happy, happy to engage folks if uh, they'd like to during the um, Q&A. Uh, but I'll just finish here by uh, suggesting that this distinction between um, institutions and players that have been responsible, and of course there are some of those out there, um, that the distinction be made by all of us and not to lump in all the activity, all the lending activity that has been made to low-mod income populations as being part of the problem. Um, there were uh, incredible excesses um, that were uh, unfortunately the, the bulk of the activity over the last few years, but they've not been the only ones. So I think it's important for all of us to continue to look for the tortoises that have been out there um, plodding along um, doing prudent lending to try and find ways to support that lending, even as the hares um, have taken us to uh, the uh, state we're in today. Thank you. I'm Deborah Momsen Hudson, and I run our the National Affordable Housing Program at Self Help. I'm going to talk just a little bit about the um, context of the current crisis, and then talk more about the four different types of lenders 
that we have in the mortgage lending industry, um, talk some about the current situation in terms of performance, sorry again, <clears throat> and delinquency for all those characteristics and in all those um, populations, and then talk some about what we can do as investors to hopefully impact things going forward. This um, chart for me is the most helpful one to um, really show what's happened in the change in real housing prices. As you can see, unfortunately, what a lot of economists are saying that historically, really over the last 50 years, that the increases in mortgage lending have been followed by an equal and sustained decrease. So if that happens, we're in for a long ride. So just to give you some information about the four players that are that actually do home lending, and this will apply to the um, comparisons I do at the in a few seconds around performance. So there are com community development financial institutions or community lending organizations that lend particularly in low-income um, and moderate-income neighborhoods. There are also the prime market. So that's kind of what you think of as the standard plain vanilla mortgage market that most people get their um, mortgages through. And then also the subprime lending market. And I think it's important for people to know what the true definition of subprime is um, because it has such a negative connotation, and in many ways a lot of CDFIs are subprime lenders because we um, oftentimes serve the same markets. But the true technical definition of subprime lending is loans that are high-cost loans or where the interest rate charged to the borrower is three percentage points higher than the prevailing interest rate. And then there's the Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, which has really become the um, go-to place for lending right now, particularly for credit-impaired borrowers. They're a huge segment of the market right now. It's very important that they're there. They're government-subsidized, so they're able to do underwriting that other folks aren't able to do. So this – oh, that's not good. Okay, now it's good. Um, so – this might be a difficult slide to read, but I think it's really important. Um, basically, what this does, this is a compilation of data from many different CDFIs. So across the country, lots of different target markets, uh, many different geographies. But it basically shows you um, that 50% of the target market that CDFIs reach are low income or very low income. And then if you look at the prime market, it's around 20. Subprime, this is really important, um, that it's around 30%. The, this is, is critical when we're looking at the performance slides to really demonstrate the fact that lending to low-income people does not lead to poor performance. It's also important to look at the, the race and ethnicity da data. So um, as you can see, CDFIs also are at 50% in terms of um, race and then 25% in terms of ethnicity, um, lending to African Americans and Hispanics. And also, uh, and I think the one thing that you don't see on this subprime slide that's critical and something we should all take a pause to think about is that in 2006... Half of the loans that went to African-American families 
or subprime loans. There's no way that that should have been true from a credit or a risk perspective. That has tremendous implications for the African-American community for probably decades to come. Um, there was unfair targeting. Um, there, and there's also been a lot of data that shows that a lot of the subprime, people that received subprime loans could have qualified for prime loans if they had gone through that channel. So this slide is just because this is the data that I have access to with self-help, but this um, holds true for many CDFIs. The Center for Community Capital at the University of North Carolina did um, an academic study on the performance of self-helps mortgage loans compared to a similar cohort of subprime loans. So... This isn't PR. This isn't manipulated. It's a bunch of PhDs who have to do the right thing and look at all the analysis and do statistics, which I'm glad I don't have to do. Um, and basically what they did is they created a similar set in terms of credit risk, geography, down payment of the mortgages. So they made the loans, the self-help loans and the subprime loans have exactly the same characteristics. The only difference was that they were subprime loans versus loans that someone got through the self-help program. So you can see that um, in the, the light blue is the self-help loans and the purple is the um, subprime. And with loans that originated in 2004, the subprime loans performed about three times worse, and then the same thing in 2006 originations. So I think that that's a really... Um, critical piece and really demonstrates that the channel or the, the door you walk into has made way too much difference up to now. And that's what we need to change. We need to make it so that whatever door you walk into, you get an affordable, quality, fair um, home loan. Just expanding a little bit about what Dave said on the aspects of community lending. And I really think that it's important for um, CDFIs to claim their role as R&D for the traditional financial industry. We um, all do very important critical work that makes a really big difference in individual borrowers' lives. And it's really important that we take that into the larger financial system and prove that our performance has consistently been better and that the rest of the world needs to model our behavior um, I know that that's done by a lot of uh, CDFIs and something that's really critical. And, and this is all very kind of common sense work, but it's important to go over full documentation. So that means that you have to provide your pay stub, you have to provide your tax return. Um, in 2000 and in this year, in the first quarter of 2008, Loans that didn't have full documentation were 11% of the loans that Fannie Mae held on their portfolio, and they were 50% of their losses. So um, you have to prove that you have the money, and, and the lenders have to require that you show that documentation. The second, the ability to pay um, requirement is uh, also a no-brainer. Dave was being modest there. He was critical in getting that um, in the rules and will make a huge difference for the world. Retail originations, 
Uh, we hear a lot about brokers and mortgage brokers being the bad guys. I'm not sure that that's true. There's issues with compensation and accountability, but it is definitely true that if you go through to a bricks-and-mortar retail um, origination that is directly accountable to a bank, those have been proven to be much more um, successful and have much lower foreclosure rates than loans that go through brokers. Fully escrowed taxes and insurance. This is a tremendous issue for low-income borrowers. Um, as everyone knows, you have to pay property taxes and homeowners insurance once a year in um, loans made to low-income families. Cash flow is such an issue. It's really important that those payments are divided in 12 pieces and part of your mortgage every year. Um, we see constantly when we're looking at loans that are not fully escrowed that just having to make those payments once a year can make a borrower go into default. Fixed-rate loans, so there isn't any surprise um, in terms of payment increases. And then homeownership retention. I'm just going to touch on that briefly, but there really is a lot of critical work that is done to not quickly get the loans through the pipeline. Um, we're seeing a – this is definitely changing, but last year we were seeing a lot of traditional lenders, if a borrower was two payments behind, they would initiate foreclosure. Well, that's really easy. It's very easy to get two payments before behind if you're a low-income person and you have cash flow up throughout the year um, issues. You suddenly have to um, – there's actual extra expenses for school or for the holidays. So um, it's really important to be a patient lender to realize that you're going to have late payments. And it's also – People are really realizing that it makes sense from a financial perspective, not just from a social perspective. Uh, for example, it's not uncommon now to lose 50% on a foreclosure. So if you have a $100,000 loan and you have to take that loan all the way to, to foreclosure sale, the bottom line of what you recoup is $50,000. That's tremendous financial impact. And if you do a loan modification or adjust the payments or adjust the interest rates to keep the borrower in the home, you can do a net present value and lose maybe $10,000. So it's really a no-brainer that needs to be changed in the entire um, mortgage system so that investors are demanding that kind of behavior. Okay, I have to hurry. Oh, this is important, though. Okay, so this is a really busy graph, but it's just to basically, I think it's important for us to say that to make it very clear that the macroeconomy is going to have an impact on all lenders, even the ones that did it right. Okay, so everybody after, for the last year has seen significant upticks. Self-help is this blue line. You can see that we perform very well when we're compared with FHA and subprime and even um standard prime adjustable rate mortgages. I think it's really important to recognize that the macro economy is going to have a difference, is going to make a difference in the ability particularly of low-income people to make their payments because they've lost, they don't have overtime anymore, they've lost their second job. Low-income folks are always the first to be hit in an economic recession. It's also extremely important to recognize the issue of foreclosures in neighborhoods. So um, Center for Responsible Lending did a study that showed if you have a foreclosure in your neighborhood, the value in your house decreases by $3,000. 
So if you're in a neighborhood that's having continued foreclosures, your, your value of your house continues to go down. Those same borrowers used to be able to, until a year ago, if they had a life event, um, a medical illness or a job loss or a divorce, they were able to sell their house and pay the bank more than what they owed on the mortgage, pay off the full amount they owed the, the mortgage. Now they can't do that. So that has tremendous implications and the reason why these are going up as the housing values are going down. Um, so I think it's important for us to recognize that's going to be true for all of us. I also have some very sobering statistics about foreclosures in the future that I won't share with you. Um, <laughs> um, uh, in terms of what investors can do, I think um, Julie's going to talk more about what is possible to do from a shareholder activism perspective. The one thing I would say there, it's a very technical issue, but it's critical. Ask for the lender's um, homeownership preservation rate. Don't ask them for how many loans avoid foreclosure. There's technical ways that you can say, well, this borrower didn't go to foreclosure, but they still lost their house. So who really cares? The important thing is that they keep their house. Um, and then in terms of debt, there are two important things that need to, to change in terms of um, mortgage-backed securities. They need to, everyone needs to know what the characteristics are of the underlying loans. Credit default swaps didn't work. That's also a highly technical thing that we can talk about. Dividing up the risk layers in subprime lending in tranches was also disastrous in terms of accountability. Um, and then also one thing that right now is prohibited that Loans that are in mortgage-backed securities cannot be modified to keep the borrower in their house. Their interest rate can't be changed, and the principal balance can't be reduced. Since the vast majority of mortgages are held in mortgage-backed securities, that's a tremendous issue um, that I hope that we can support uh, a change in that. And then in terms of on the legislative front, um, in all the bailout bills that happened, there was no guarantee to help anything for the borrowers that were um, that really are the people that are dealing with on a daily basis. It was all focused towards the institutions. So it's critical that there will be um, legislation that will specifically target the homeowners to give them relief. And um, the method for doing that, that Center for Responsible Lending is supporting, is changes to the bankruptcy bill to allow judicial modifications of home mortgage debt, just like they're allowed on second more second homes and on yachts, but they're not allowed on um, primary residences. So it's it's a no-brainer. It's critical. It doesn't require any action, um, proactive action in terms of the lenders, and we think it's the best solution. And the last thing is to support community investment. That's it. Uh, I don't know how to do PowerPoints, so I wasn't able to do that. Um, 
I'm Julie Goodridge, and I work at North Star Asset Management, as you know, which is a pretty small place. And um, my colleague Margaret and I can, are the entire shareholder resolution department. Um, there are some of my colleagues out here that have far more experience doing shareholder resolutions than we do, and hopefully uh, during the question and answer period they'll sort of speak up around that. Um, we started doing shareholder resolutions uh, as a way to um, – really engage with companies and to uh, figure out um, a way to target companies that we didn't feel particularly good or good about that were sticking, they were stuck in our portfolios because, you know, they, we couldn't sell the shares and um, they weren't companies that we necessarily invested in proactively. Uh, one of the first, the first resolution that we did happened to be on predatory lending and that was in 2001. And the way that we we crafted, we decided to craft this resolution uh, by working with some folks at United for a Fair Economy, Responsible Wealth, and also we ended up doing some work with Self-Help and also ACORN, uh, believe it or not. ACORN's been in the media. I used to be an ACORN organizer, so that part felt really good to me. Um, yeah. So basically what we do when we try to come up with a resolution is we try to get the company to examine the impact that it is having on the greater world. That's really what we care about. Um, shareholder resolutions are fairly easy to craft. I like to take the, the I like to be um, as proactive as we possibly can be and as really quite as rude as we possibly can be in presenting shareholder resolutions at companies. This is not a strategy that is used broadly in this community, but it's a strategy that we have, we can do at North Star a little bit. Um, we feel that it's really important to be as aggressive and, and you have to be completely honest in exposing, uh, some of the issues that the corporation has in the body of the resolution. We feel that we are not experts um, at doing share at at, um, at whatever the issue is. So, for example, we're not experts like these guys are on predatory lending. Um, but we feel that if we go out, to, we we will network with experts and with activist groups to be able to construct our resolutions and to come up with creative ideas and creative ways to approach um, these issues. Um, in, in 2001, just so you know, um, we felt, and I think it was primarily driven by um, our friends at uh, Responsible Wealth at United for a Fair Economy, we said we wanted to get involved in this. Scott Klinger was over there, and he had been doing a lot of shareholder resolutions. And we, we felt that the subprime lending industry was under increasing scrutiny for doing predatory lending, um, we happen to have a company in our portfolio called Household International, um, and Household had made a lot of public statements that their subprime loans were not predatory. Um, they were being targeted by Acorn at the time, along with a, a lot of other lenders, and uh, for predatory lending practices. And we decided that they were the perfect target for us because, you know, there was obviously a disconnect between you know, what household was saying that they were doing and what was actually going on on the ground. Um, so we went to the first shareholder, uh, annual shareholder meeting, and we were completely sold on the fact that they were trying, this was a big cover-up by Household International. Their entire business model was based on um, targeting uh, minorities um, and, and providing them with very high-cost loans in an effort to help them 
you know, stay in their houses or consolidate their credit. It, you know, that was basically what, you know, those, those things you used to get in the mail that said, you know, we'll give you a hundred thousand dollars if you just sign this piece of paper. Those were the kinds of, uh, uh, things that household was doing at the time. So what we did was we created a, crafted a resolution that asked with a resolved clause that asked, um, household to do an executive compensation reviews to study ways of linking a portion of executive compensation to successfully addressing predatory lending practices. Now, obviously, we did not really care about this report. What we were trying to do is we really wanted them to take a look at their own behavior, and we also wanted to make a huge stink about them as a company in the context of their peers and in the world. And so the, the best way to do that was to come up with um, – you know, a resolved statement that would pass muster with the Securities and Exchange Commission and would still uh, allow us to potentially get some media exposure or to have the community groups, quite truthfully, get some media exposure around this issue so that household would be held accountable. Um, the first year that we submitted that resolution, we got 5% of the vote. Um, and the way it works with shareholder resolutions is the first year you have to get at least 3%. The second year you have to get at least 6% of the vote. And the third year you have to get 10%. So we made the first thres- threshold, which was great. So we were able to su- resubmit the exact resolution. Now, I have to tell you that when Margaret and I went to the annual shareholder meeting, it was a very intimidating You know, it's intimidating because a lot of these folks, you know, everybody in the room was a person of color. All the people that were doing the lending, that were meeting with the clients, that were, you know, making loans and that sort of thing were people of color. They were talking to their community and they did not see what they were doing, that what the acts that they were doing as, as being particularly bad. So it was, it was kind of challenging. Um, the next year we resubmitted that particular resolution and we received more than 20% of the vote. Um, in addition, um, the, the attorney general of about 20 states had uh, settled with household. So household was targeted sort of because of the ACORN work, um, because of some of the work that the community organizations had been doing. They were t- targeted and they ended up, um, you know, settling with the, the AG's office after a while. Um, we presented the exact same resolution at Citigroup over a couple of years at AIG and then finally at Wells Fargo. Now, Wells Fargo was kind of an interesting story because um, Wells didn't really see them. They see themselves as kind of a socially responsible bank, um, and in many ways they are. And but but during the time when um, around 2003 and 2004, when they wanted to see they, they wanted to increase their profit margins, so they were going out and acquiring you know subprime lenders essentially to. Uh, take advantage of the, um, you know, the profit margin that these guys had in their business. So they wanted to be a part of that. And when they did that, they, um, they purchased some subprime, some, some subprime, uh, lenders. Uh, so we had to re, and, and in fact, when we had, re- we had presented our resolution, we did not get we got 5.9% of the vote. I think it was in the third year. And so we were not able to re, redo that resolution because we hadn't reached the 10% threshold. So what we did was we recrafted, we went back to to um, responsible wealth, we went back to self-help, and we said, how can we recraft this resolution to target some of the key issues that are going on in this subprime and predatory lending market? And what we found, um, based on some data that those guys had collected, was that 
32.4% of first mortgages, um, as Deborah pointed out, uh, were made to African-American families were high-cost mortgages, um, that African-American borrowers received high-cost loans 15.7% of the time, Latinos 12.2% of the time, and, wh- and whites were only at 8.7%. Um, Wells home loan disclosure data um, to the uh, to the Fed showed um, high-cost loans, predatory loans, to at 29.5% to African-Americans and 12.6% to Latinos, and that African-Americans were three, 3.9 times more likely to receive a high-cost loan. So what we did is we, we took all that information and, and created a, you know, a, um, the, the whereas clauses for our shareholder resolution, and then we did a resolved clause. And this is, this is what we asked them to do. We asked the board to provide a special res- report explaining racial and ethnic disparities in the cost of loans provided by the company. We wanted to know if Wells, this is really radical here, we wanted to know if Wells believed that the disparities in high-cost loans affect the home affordability or wealth-building benefits of home ownership for their minority customers. And um, we wanted to know if Wells believed these disparities are explained by the racial wealth divide in the United States, and, and if so, what can be done to lessen the divide? Um, again, we use this as a way to to be particularly progressive. We didn't think that we were going to, you know, be welcomed with open arms by Wells Fargo. Um, they were incredibly, you know, hostile, in fact. The first year we got 12.7% of the vote. Then the next year it was down to 8.2, and then it was down to 6.36% of the vote. So we are not able to redo that resolution. Now, this resolution, for some reason, I don't know whether it wasn't, Margaret would have to speak to this, but we were able to get this past the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, and we were able to resubmit it again. I don't know because the Securities and Exchange Commission has gotten uh, very picky about what they'll allow in terms of the resolve clause. I don't know if this resolution would fly again at another company, but at any rate, we can't do it again at well, so we have to come up with a new idea. Um, we only used that resolution at Wells, I, I'll say, because we only had Wells Fargo as a financial company that had predatory lending practices in our portfolios. So there's lots of other companies that you could, if you wanted to, you could you know, use that resolution and try to resubmit it. So what we've done now is we're trying to construct, um, we have to construct a new resolution. And basically, and I'm running out of time. Um, what we want to do is we want to highlight the difference between predatory and subprime loans. Um, we still believe that, you know, many Americans think that the crisis was caused by poor people and blacks taking advantage of the unregulated system and making bad choices, right? Um, we want to uh, show that predatory lenders have a higher disclosure rate than other subprime lenders. We want to try to bring in some of the good work that's been done by CDFIs um, and self-help groups um, in terms of trying to help prevent delinquencies. And we want to show what their model has been and compare that model to what's been going on with Wells. Um, We want to use as much data as we can from self-help um, and ideally, we want to be able to partner with activist group, other activists that are out there to do this, to do this work. Now, one thing was that Acorn 
uh, filed a suit against Wells Fargo a few years back. And so ACORN was not available for whatever, whatever they worked out didn't allow them to be activists with us on this particular, on our last uh, racial disparity issue and will not probably allow them to be partners with us. So we have to sort of network with other community groups. So in our resolved clause, some of the rough ideas that we had are you know, to ask Wells to report on all their loans delinquencies included by racial and economic breakdown and the percent of Alt-A loans in delinquency or foreclosure, to ask them to report on the impact of, of, you know, the positive impact, really, of escrowing taxes and insurance, providing fixed-rate products, requiring full documentation, um, avoiding brokers and intermediaries, and, you know, trying to get to know who it is that they're loaning money to, um, and we want them to report on whether or not these measures reduce foreclosure rates and increase homeowner preservation rates. So somehow we want to try to figure out a way to zero minutes left to, to make that happen. Um, what I what I want to just say in conclusion is that we we feel that doing shareholder resolutions, especially on issues like this, are a very it's, it should be a very creative process. We consider it a creative process, and we're very happy to work with anybody who's willing to work with us in terms of um, creating a shareholder resolution that we think will expose bad practices at the companies. We do not try and negotiate with the companies about their bad practices because we do not feel that we are the experts in this regard, okay? So, um, and we really think that one of the things, even if you're not um, going to file a shareholder resolution, we really hope that you will encourage the companies that you work for or your clients to vote in favor of shareholder um, resolutions like this one around predatory lending because we should be able to get a much higher percentage of the vote if we've got institutional support. Thank you. So I want to, again, I want to thank the panel um, these are really the leading experts in their fields that you have here, and we try to save as much time as possible for Q&A, which is why I was rushing people a little at the end, because we know you have important questions, and often the most valuable part of the session can be in Q&A. I'm just going to do a one-minute um, summation, because uh, one of the things that we did want to leave you with was what are social investors doing um, in this space in terms of community investing. And at Calvert Foundation, we've dedicated 15% of our portfolio to affordable housing organizations. We make loan capital available to CDFIs like Self-Help Credit Union, um, with whom we have a significant investment. We also make working capital available to affordable housing developers and community development corporations to support neighborhood stabilization plans in these communities that are being eroded by um, excessive disproportionate foreclosures. And then um, lastly, what should you as an SRI investor be thinking about or considering as you consider community investing? One is rely on existing infrastructure for your due diligence efforts because there is a lot of existing infrastructure for due diligence Um, Partner with intermediaries. Use organizations that are already doing this work directly in communities to support them to make loans to other CDFIs around the country. Um, And explore opportunities not just to support homeownership preservation, which is keeping people in their homes and keeping them from being foreclosed upon, but also efforts to stabilize neighborhoods where the foreclosures have already taken place. Um, So with that said, I'm going to open it up to Q&A. Whoops. 
if I can uh, figure out. Uh, oh, this was my final slide, shining lights, <laughs> is that the CDFIs are shining lights and really work through all of the different mechanisms at hand to support community investing now more than ever. And so we've got our first question. I'm interested in hearing more about how we move forward and get out of this mess. Oh, I'm Ben Roberts, uh, represented with First Affirmative Financial Network. Um, so moving forward and how we get out of this, we heard a little bit about the proposal for modification of mortgage terms and bankruptcies, and that's been fiercely resisted with the argument that it would raise mortgage rates for everybody and disrupt the mortgage industry. So I, another, another idea that's out there, well, I guess there's an existing plan for voluntary modification of mortgages, and the problem there is that the banks have to take a full write-off and they have capital issues, so that's seems to not be helping nearly as many homeowners as it, as it could. Um, I've heard a proposal for something called a property appreciation right that might address that, where the lender would get an interest in the future appreciation of the property in return for uh, modifying the mortgage terms. And so I don't know if you could speak to those three ideas as well as any, any other concepts that are out there that can stop this cycle of foreclosures and declining home values that it seems to me we're nowhere near fully having addressed. Deborah, do you want to take a stab at that? Okay. <coughs> okay, so just to clarify, you talked about bankruptcy, full write-off, and what was the third one? Property. Oh, the property appreciation. Property appreciation right, okay. Um, so I don't work for the Federal Reserve, but this, these are just my opinions. Um, uh, um, so in terms of bankruptcy... Um, I think I actually do think that there's good chance of bankruptcy passing either in the um, lame duck Congress or in the beginning of 2009. Of course, depending on what happens with the election. Um, in terms of the lenders having to take a full write-off, if um, I'm not sure that that's the case, what has been really, and then um, property appreciation. I just think that that's very challenging from an operational standpoint. Then you have to keep track of, for the rest of the life of the mortgage, how much the property appreciated, what your percentage is um, that you're going to get back when it sells. Go ahead. As I understand it, it, it comes in at the time of, of resale or, or yeah, financing. Yeah, I know. I know. So. But that could happen in 10 years and 15 years. Um, okay, and then the thing that I would – really the operational – Thing that's the most challenging in the bailout bill. Treasury said that they could modify loans. That's only true for whole loans. That's not true for loans that are held in mortgage-backed securities. That's a really critical piece of information. Um, the problem with mortgage-backed securities is that because the investor is guaranteed a certain interest rate and had it based on a certain principal balance, um, in the legal documents of the MBS don't allow you to take it out of the mortgage-backed security, modify it, and then put it back into a security immediately. You have to then hold it as a whole loan, which has a significant impact in terms of capital, which is the reason why bankruptcy is a good solution, because that basically doesn't require um, – it, it allow what happens now is that you can – the bankruptcy um, can stay in the mortgage-backed security – and you don't have to worry about second lien holders. You don't have to pay those off in order to do a modification. Yeah. And, and Deborah points to some of the challenges with voluntary efforts because 
servicers and uh, lenders are bound by these indentures that are that where the mortgage-backed securities are um, held and and controlled. But I, I would also point out that as investors, there are going to be a lot of opportunities, both locally and nationally, to invest in stabilization funds that are going to be looking at working with some of the servicers on a voluntary basis to have them take a haircut and to be invested in um, the deals. It does represent operational challenges, as Deborah's mentioned, in terms of how you track that over the life of the loan. Um, but there are lots of efforts underway out there with, you know, varying names. But I would say, you know, uh, stay posted. Um, yes. Dave has an answer. Oh, sorry, Dave. Well, I was going to jump in, but I'm also looking at the questions. growing line of people here <laughs> trying to squeeze in questions in a short amount of time. So I'll just... You sure? Yeah, yeah. It's fine. Okay. Um, maybe another question will, will allow you to jump in on that. Uh, Andy Loving of Just Money Advisors and First Affirmative. Uh, I'm curious as to whether uh, a lot of folks in a lot of different places at local levels have been working with the creation of affordable housing trust funds. And I'm wondering where they fit into the potential uh, response to our situation. I know that in some cases it's predominantly aimed at rental housing, but I know in other places it's also aimed at uh, uh, affordable ownership. And I'm just curious as to whether, and the specific question as to whether is there any prospect, again, the big issue with we can create them, but if we can't find capital to put in them, and of whether any of the uh, Possibilities is of we, whether we can get government more government money into those affordable housing trust funds. Thanks. Um, well, I'll, I'll take a pass on that last part. Um, but but in terms of um, uh, just in terms of community efforts um, in general, we're working with a lot of folks um, at the ground level as well as at the national level, trying to provide support um, to community leaders, both nonprofits and uh, local elected officials, um, to try to deal with. Um, the, the problem that's out there. Um, as Deborah alluded to, foreclosures affect not only the families uh, themselves, but to um, uh, surrounding neighbors and communities. These are what um, economists would call negative externalities um, of foreclosures, and especially in those communities where we've got concentrated foreclosures, um, it, it becomes a, a cycle that really builds on itself. Um, it's a, a huge challenge because in a lot of ways local leaders are tackling local problems uh, that have of national and in some cases international uh, causes, but of course if you're working on the ground level you have to do um, what you can. Um, one of the um, efforts that's out there, folks might know, um, that there was uh, roughly for about $3.92 billion set aside um, in recent legislation to be distributed to states and municipalities to help with specifically um, the purchase of properties um, that might be going vacant and not put back into uh, productive reuse. Um, there are a lot of folks uh, working on that um, at a national level, actually recipients um, of those dollars need to put their full plans into place by December 1st. Um, to be um, considered by HUD, which is administering those funds. Uh, we're also working with some intermediaries that have uh, recently put together a brand new entity called the National Community Stabilization Trust um, that is specifically meant to be the interface between loan servicers who have these portfolios and uh, local communities that might have an interest in trying to get hold of them. That said, I think there are a lot of concerns just looking at this one example um, of the struggles. $4 billion might sound, remember when that sounded like a lot of money? Um, 
Uh, I think once that's spread around, um, we'll see that that's not very much um, put forward to uh, tackle some of the problems. Um, I think there are a lot of concerns, too, about setting expectations for what, in reality, folks on the ground can do to help ameliorate some of the problems that are there. I don't know if either of you want to jump in on that. Ditto. Yeah, ditto. Uh, my name is Morgan Simon. Thank you all for being here. And I do responsible investment with colleges and universities um, and with the community investment program as part of that. And it's been a tremendous time for us as schools are pulling out of the common fund for students to step in and say, hey, there's some other great options in a community space. And I was curious to hear from everyone your 30-second best sales pitch on why, as a response to the mortgage crisis, that um, basically Sorry, I need to rephrase that, step back for a second. Um, that why is this investing in CDFIs a great way to mitigate risk coming out of the mortgage crisis of what's, what's your best arguments? Because that's the message that we're trying to craft. Did you, I'm sorry, of making a risk? Is that what you said? I can, let me clarify that because okay. I apologize. Um, basically that we're trying to pitch that coming out of the mortgage crisis, investing in CDFIs is a great way to protect yourself from risk, that these CDFIs that have done such a great job of, of responsible underwriting and lending are, are a much better option than schools taking their money out of the common fund and putting it back into, for example, a Wells Fargo. Um, and we're just trying to figure out our messaging there, and I'm curious of your best okay, got sales it. pitches. Okay. Um, thanks. I would say historically CDFIs have been the best providers of access to affordable, fair credit to low-income communities, and that will continue to be the case. And in, in addition to their own direct work, they do advocacy with the larger industry to change behavior to help avoid crises like this in the future. Um, the only thing I would add, because I, there was a period of time, um, a couple, just about, I think it was August, when, you know, I was worried about buying certificates of deposit. Um, you know, I was worried in March that we were going to break the buck in money markets. So I was wishing that I had had all of our debt money in CDFIs <laughs> because I felt like the, the kind of scrutiny that you, you need to go through in order to provide uh, a safe investment for somebody. You know, the, the full, the, the full ex, um, disclosure was, was in place already at a CDFI, whereas at, you know, a Wells or, you know, any of these other uh, giant banks, IndyMac, you know, the, it wasn't, there wasn't in place. So I think that because that's why in our resolutions what we're trying to do is say, look, these guys are experts at providing these types of loans, and so their securities are more secure as a result of that. Forget about the insurance, you know, they'll, you know that's all about printing money. So... Um, I think that you should you should say that the that the that the most important thing is to make sure that the people that you're you're lending your money to to make an income off of have really done what they need to do to make sure that that income stream is still coming in and CDFIs have a better record of that than traditional money center banks. Um, I I won't. <laughs> help you with your sales pitch. Um, but I, I will say that I'll uh, take the opportunity to, to reiterate a point that Deborah made, um, which is in the current environment, um, even the most responsible players are going to see um, the performance, um, uh, their performance overall probably affected by um, the, the broader economy. I don't think that's anything particularly particular to CDFIs, for instance. You know, I was watching C-SPAN this morning. They ran the ticker um, down the bottom of the screen, and, you know, this is 
across industries, and all I, I kept seeing the red arrow that was indicating down, down, down for every company that, was, that just happened to be, you know, uh, uh, early this morning. Um, but I, I do think that we need to be um, careful uh, moving forward that we don't um, paint everybody with the same brush, um, as there have been lots of mistakes um, uh, made in this. There have been a lot of unscrupulous players, frankly, um, to really find ways to distinguish between um, those who have done their best to be responsible, um, who may be affected by this crisis, um, and those who are out there uh, being irresponsible um, and, uh, you know, are, are seeing their returns uh, affected as well. Yeah, and while I agree with David's point that the macro um, impact of this is not uh, not clear yet what it will be, um, I will, on a personal note, say that I'm an investor in Calvert Foundation. I'm a note holder. And when I opened up my statement, and this was before the most recent decline, this was sometime in uh, late September, and I saw 3%. That looks pretty good. And when you look at the performance and the track record of delivering, the interest rates may have been lower than what was seen over time, but they are steady, Eddie. I love the hare and the tortoise example because that's the message that I would be giving to people is that they're going to deliver time and time again. I'm Mary Reinhardt from Reinhardt & Associates, an investment advisor. Um, and I had, I was, I, I learned something and I may have misunderstood. And uh, I think it's Deborah that said that, that inside these credit default swaps that, that, that have been diced and sliced and that if there's a default mortgage in there, that, that you can't work it out because you can't change the interest rate. And right. if that, if that's the fact, I would love to know, if you know, what percentage of these subprime or or problem mortgages are inside this this stuff that's not going to be resolved quickly and we as people can't help resolve it because we can't change we can't work out those mortgages and how many what's the percentage then i have one other question okay first answer to your first question the problem with subprime securities is they're divided up into so many tranches. The servicer, the one that takes the payments, have to get approval from all those tranches to do the modification. And Dave knows numbers. Um, I actually couldn't tell you off the top of my head what the um, distribution looks like. Yeah, so, so, so much for passing the mic off to me. Whatever. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the, the issue of mortgage-backed securities um, is uh, particularly nettlesome. Uh, we t this was alluded to actually in an earlier um, question. Um, uh, loans that are held as whole loans um, in portfolios are much easier to modify for a whole host of reasons. Um, for that matter, loans that are held in um, mortgage-backed securities that are issued by Fannie or Freddie um, have had a, a lot of other options available to them. But in the private label um, securitizations, the problem without getting too technical um, um, on this, the problem is that the loan servicer is essentially a gun for hire. They have been contracted um, by the trust, which is the legal entity that owns um, all of the component loans in a mortgage-backed security, um, to make decisions um, on the behalf of the trust. Um, and uh, 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 unfortunately, there are problems there because there are competing interests uh, within that. Um, I do think that the, this is a place where there have been some important, though, very uh, nerdy technical 
um, uh, changes that have been made both by the industry and by regulators over the last couple of years that have um, helped that. But I think this is one of these places where we see the unintended consequences of something like the development of structured finance and the evolution of the secondary markets, which has had a lot of good things and a lot of positive benefits. Um, but in a time like this, it's made it very, very difficult and very challenging to um, unwind the transactions and make changes. So we have about 10 minutes left, so I'm going to ask the rest of the questions to be very brief and the, the answers to be a minute or two. Briefer. I just have one other question, and that, that is to um, <coughs> the gal that talked about uh, 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 the, the, the shareholders' um, resolutions to Wells um, being from Charlotte um, and Wachovia, and Wells has just purchased Wachovia, and Wachovia has just purchased Golden West. It seems like to me you have a lot more problems um, to, uh, to deal with now that we have a bank with a lot more problems. So Wells may be who you go after, but are you going to change your strategy because of what's happening in the banking world or in uh, this banking entity? And we have five minutes left, not ten, so very brief. Um, no. <laughs> hey, Julie. No, we're not going to change our strategy. Um, I think that it makes it a little bit easier because they're all it's all basically one bank now, so you just have to go after one institution. Good point. Yes. Hi, my name is Christine Jans. Uh, since we have someone from the Fed here, I just wanted to ask a quick, quick question, challenging an assumption first, that you know everyone is talking about the fact that the Fed kept rates low for a very long time, created the problem, whereas from a different view, it appears that the rapid increase in rates from a very low rate to a fairly high rate in a very short period of time may in fact have predicated this crisis. The Fed is now obviously attempting to lower rates, and it seems that a rapid decrease in the rates might in fact alleviate or be much of a part of the solution to this problem. What is the Fed thinking about this? And do you have a long-term plan for a more consistent rate policy, less erratic, that might allow <laughs> you can see where this is going? No comment. <laughs> he really can't say anything. Yeah, and, and un unfor unfortunately, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for you, Dave, but um, I think he's not in a position to answer on the Fed policy for, for that kind of question. Sorry. Hi, my name's Ed Taylor. I'm from Canada. I live in a 700-square-foot uh, concrete home. I am currently building homes in Chile because the mortgage situations down there are better than in North America. I just received a phone call about a month ago from India, and I was offered a 3.4% uh, mortgage. Um, and I'm wondering, of all your uh, three experts, what kind of research has been done in each one of your fields outside of the United States to solve a global problem? I still can't hear the end of questions. How we're going to solve a global housing problem? It started here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there are lots of other really smart people who know the answers to that question. Yeah. What kind of research? Right. And I think it's a very good point that there are lots of lessons to be learned internationally, globally, that we can bring back to the United States. I don't know that, that any of us have a specific question about exa the exact type of research that can be done in this field that would benefit the U.S. 
But um, there certainly is a lot of work around housing microfinance that is taking place right now internationally that could have implications and uh, learnings for us here in the United States. But in the interest of time, because I'm told we are in the lunchroom, and so we're going to hold up lunch. We're going to take one last question from Kathy. Thank you. Yeah, hi. Great panel, you guys. One thing I have been uh, really trying to understand, and I'd love to hear your um, take on it, is the role that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have played or not played in this crisis. Um, and, again, I'm, I'm hearing just like you're hearing a lot of people sort of blame CRA for the whole crisis, a lot of blame being put on them, and I'd love to just hear your take on that. So self-help's main business partner is Fannie Mae, so you have to take that into account in what I'm going to say. Um, I really think in this whole situation it's a lot easier for people to find one actor to blame, and I think we're trying to do that as much as possible when I think the entire system is culpable. Um, Definitely Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac made a lot of decisions that were not smart ones, in particular purchasing subprime securities, horrible horrible decision. Um, one statistic that I didn't get to say that I wanted to say is that it, given where foreclosures are currently headed, if they stay at the same pace, we'd be at 10% foreclosure rate for prime loans. That's just astounding. And about 67 for subprime if they stay the same on outstanding mortgages. Um, there's also a lot of culpability in that space, not just at Fannie and Freddie, but in traditional lenders and stockholders because they chased the money, that all the money that was being earned in subprime, and they started doing just as risky loans as everybody else. So I think they are culpable in terms of the loans that they were making in 2006 and 2007. Many of them should not have been made. But that's true. I think that's true of everyone. Oh, sorry, one last point about Fannie. I think they're in a very difficult situation that I hope will be fixed, Deborah's opinion, that they're trying to meet the, um, meet the requirements of shareholders and also serve a public mission at the same time. So thank you. Again, one last round of applause. Um,